Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode seven of the Left Pocket Project podcast. This is Wendy Muse, your host and the creator of the Left Pocket Project. Today, I'm actually going to do something a little bit different. Instead of interviewing another person, I'm actually going to tell you a little bit more about myself and a lot more about the Left Pocket Project, precisely because I think there are some things that are a bit unclear about the project or that people have questions about. Um, and also just to sort of introduce myself for those of you who don't know me as a person or who maybe have just jumped on to see what the project is all about, I'd like to go into a bit more of what I'm doing with the project and how it can potentially, hopefully, have some sort of impact beyond Twitter and beyond social media. So that's what I'll be talking about today. Before I get started, I would like to just put forward some disclaimers. So for those of you who didn't already know, I'm in Portugal still. I'm here in Lisbon, and and I'm actually recording this in the apartment where I'm staying in Lisbon and where I usually stay. Uh, But that being said, (laughs) sometimes there's random noise, so um, noise that I don't have any control over. So ironically, even though my time in Lisbon is often a bit more calm and relaxed, um, my space that I live in is not always the quietest in the afternoon because that's usually when people are getting home from work. Um, You can hear dogs barking sometimes. You may hear things moving above me. You may hear even someone's television um, because it's currently 7, it's around 7.30 here as I'm recording this. Um, So sometimes I'll hear the nightly soap opera or TV show um, from my neighbor's You may also hear doors closing and even airplanes flying overhead because while I don't live close to the airport, I often hear planes because the airport in Lisbon is very, it's in the city. It's not beyond or outside of the city like you see in some other cities. So just to give you all a heads up on that, um, if you hear any weird noise, know that it's not my fault. One bit of noise that is my fault, though, is the fact that I make these recordings on, um, I make these recordings in GarageBand, which is, and I have a very old version of GarageBand that I use on purpose because um, in the newer version of GarageBand, they took away the podcast making component for some strange reason. And so I decided to force download, (laughs) long story, I decided to force download the old version of GarageBand so I would still have access to the podcast making stuff, which I'll also go into a little bit later. Um, And I also happen to have a really old Mac computer, at least old in today's standards where everyone everyone buys a new computer pretty much once a year, it seems. Um, For those of us who aren't rich, like myself, I can't afford to buy a new computer once a year. Um, So I have the misfortune of using quite an old Mac. Um, It's about seven or eight. It's about eight years old. Um, and it makes a lot of noise. So sometimes you'll hear an echo or you'll hear like on some of my recordings, you may have noticed by now that there's like this weird buzzing sound sometimes in the background or like a, whoosh, like a whooshing sound or something um, that sometimes 
may be confusing. Um, it actually comes from my computer exhaust fan, I guess, because <laughs> it's so old that when I use it, it like overheats and then it starts whirring and creating these sounds like it's going to have an asthma attack. So that's what you may hear sometimes in the background whenever I record my intros for the podcast. The other thing that's sort of funny about that too is that generally I play some sort of music to lead into the podcast or to outro the pod for the podcast. Um, and now, thankfully, for the work of um, Michael Salomon, who created um, or who gave me the license to use one of his songs, I do have an official theme song. But in general, I often play that music in order to sort of, <laughs> I don't know, like hide the extra asthmatic computer sound. So that's what that's about. But I did want to start by explaining who I am, introducing myself, and then talking about the project, why I started it, what the point of the project is, um, and what it's all about, and also what I hope to do with it in the future. So this podcast, I don't foresee it being super long, this episode at least, um, because it is weird to talk about yourself for a long time, um, but I do have quite a bit to say about the project, so let's see how long I can actually get this to be. So, for starters, um, my name is Wendy Muse. For those of you who didn't already know that, um, I know some of you all follow the project page, Left POC, but not my actual personal page, which is perfectly fine and, if anything, recommended because, to be honest, um, I don't know how interesting I am as a person. I guess I'm all right, but I think that a lot of the people whose stories, whose histories and backgrounds and ideas and thoughts that I talk about on the Left Pocket Project page are, they're a lot more interesting than I am. Um, I think I have a very small role to play in this process, but um, just as sort of a conduit of this information. But I think for the most part that their lives are a lot more interesting <laughs> than mine. So following me is, you know, f purely up to your discretion, but um, if you do want to do that, you can find me at Muse Wendy. That's just my name inverted. The reason that is the case is because I used to have an account that was Wendy, just at Wendy Muse, but I lost the password, <laughs> and then I could never get the the account back. And now I think it's still like an egg, or at least like the you know, the, whatever they call the egg now, the kind of dummy account. Um, it still exists, but I don't think it's been claimed by anyone yet. Uh, we'll see. I'd have to double check on that. But yeah, that's basically my mistake. I lost the password, and after several other tries getting in, I feel like I just kind of gave up, and I said, screw it, I'll just create another name. Um, because I wasn't using Twitter very much until around 2015. That's when I really started using the site. But before then, I had opened an account thinking I would use it, looked into it, used it a couple times, didn't really like it. And then I stopped. So anyway, if you want to follow me as the person, Wendy Muse, you can find me at Muse Wendy. And just make sure that you spell Wendy with an I, not a Y. Um, that's, a, that's actually my real name, uh, Wendy Muse with an I, not a Y. So about me. Um, at present, I am actually uh, doing my PhD at NYU. I'm a PhD candidate in history. So my dissertation research has to do with um, the networking of left-leaning activists and um, people who are anti-imperial and anti-dictatorial um, activists in Brazil and in Portuguese-speaking Africa um, at the same time during the Cold War. So that's the big chunk of my research. That's not the entirety of my research, but that's often the research I talk, a part of the research that I talk about when people ask me, what are you working on? Because it's the most interesting part, um, and it's also the part that I think is most relevant to the Left Pocket Project, which I'll talk about in a little bit, I promise. 
so yeah, my research is basically just kind of looking at the ways different, part of my research is looking at the ways that these seemingly disparate groups, at least in terms of geography, are communicating with one another um, and thinking about ideas and ways to battle authoritarianism and reconstruct their societies in an image that they feel best reflects their interests, their political um, futures and visions, and the way that they want to see the society, something that they want the society to return to or become um, going forward. And so basically um, in Brazil in the 1960s, in 1964 specifically, they had a military coup occur um, that was unfortunately backed by multiple players, including the U.S., who denied it for many, many years, and it was finally, you know, information came out showing that, like many other coups, the United States had actually backed the coup in Brazil as well. Obviously, it was conservative, um, and that meant that a lot of people who had left-leaning politics, including the former president of Brazil who was deposed, who was named João Goulart, he was, um, you know, forced into exile, basically, as were a lot of leftist activists, and even people who were centrist, not necessarily uh, people who were super far left or anything, but people who just had any sort of ideas that were not hyper-conservative and in line with what the military government wanted. And, you know, this, this coup government um, and dictatorship lasted until 1985, but there were obviously several aspects of the coup government that remained um, in Brazil and sort of in the fabric of the nation, despite their recovery and return to democracy. Um, and my the part of my research that I often talk, talk about deals with the people who in Brazil were battling this um, coup government and looking beyond Brazil to find, think of ways to best do so. And some of these people, um, in typical fashion, looked to the USSR, they looked to France, they looked to Cuba, um, they even looked to neighboring countries like Argentina, Chile, etc., who were also undergoing at different times uh, military coups of their own. But what the people I'm interested in uh, the most in my research are those who decided to look to Africa and who had an understanding of Africa that was not necessarily based on Brazil's past as a slave-holding society. So um, Brazil had was one of the largest receiving sites for um, slaves from Africa. And this is, you know, obviously prior to abolition in Brazil in 1888, um, which is, again, like there's so much interesting history here, but 1888 uh, made Brazil the last country in the Western Hemisphere to abolish slavery. And actually, in a lot of ways, slavery continues to this day in Brazil, thanks to um, a lot of legislation, legislative loopholes and the like, um, or just areas that the government ignores, uh, where people are continually exploited um, because they are in dire straits economically and are forced to work without any real pay. Um, but <laughs> that aside, uh, what's interesting is that there is often this connection between Brazil and all of Africa as a continent on the basis of that enslavement and the traditions in terms of food, cultures, music, style of dress, etc., the sort of cultural elements that came out of this period of slavery in Brazil's history. And that is seen as the biggest connection between Brazil and Africa. And so I was thinking more along the lines of, well, what's going on in terms of the way people think of Africa beyond the cultural elements? And while I think that the cultural elements are really important and there's been a lot of important work done on how culture itself can be a really liberatory um, 
sort of liberatory space for people, right? And especially those who don't necessarily have access to formal politics, oftentimes people of color, poor people, women. Um, what my work focuses on is those very people, right? So poor people, people of color, women, people who are generally considered uh, within marginalized groups themselves, but who actually did look out of and beyond Brazil um, to Africa for these sorts of really strong political tools. And I think that, um, as I said, I think there's really a significant value in understanding cultural ties and, um, and the like and how they too can lead to really powerful politics and political movements. But I also think just understanding Africa in Latin America and understanding the place of Africa in Brazil's history in particular, um, sometimes focusing solely on the slave period plays into a lot of tropes that are dangerous that sort of um, place Africa as a space of the past and that that frame Africa as a place where there's little political um, organizing or little nothing of political interest. It's just something that's cultural that these people carried over with them during slavery and nothing more. And so I wanted to think about, well, what are, how, how though are, are Brazilians of any race, any, any race and any political background, how are they engaging with a hyper-political Africa during the Cold War? Because for, for those of you who study the Cold War or even understand it on a very basic level, most of you know that Cold War did not, it was not cold in most of what we now call, you know, the global south, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America. It was a hot, there were hot wars, you know, there was, there was actual physical violence and death um, and wars and all sorts of displacement movement and the like. And so um, for me, it's important to think about how were people who were facing um, their own form of oppression under the military dictatorship thinking about the ties that they could form with people who were facing another form of authoritarianism. And then shortly after, in the mid-70s, when, when Portuguese African countries, so I'm thinking of specifically Angola, Mozambique, Cape Verde, São Tomé, Príncipe, um, and Guinea-Bissau, how did they not only overthrow this incredibly powerful empire of the Portuguese, after, who had ruled there for many, many decades, if not centuries, arguably, um, if you connect both the old empire and the newer empire, um, but how did, how did those struggles in Africa um, against the Portuguese influence Brazilians who saw themselves in similar um, positions, at least in terms of, of dealing with the state as a dominant force in their lives? And why did these people decide to look to Africa and not some of the other more popular spaces of their comrades who were looking to places, like I said earlier, Cuba, France, the USSR? Um, and Argentina and Chile. So anyway, long story short, um, that's what my, the bulk of my work is about. Um, and so that's what I'm doing <laughs> with my time and how it relates to the Left Pocket Project. That also actually explains why I'm in Portugal as we speak. So I travel a lot, not on my own dime, thank God, because I'm, I'm not rich at all. I'm very, very, um, somewhere on the cusp between, uh, living paycheck to paycheck slash uh, lower middle class, but with some sort of status because I'm, I'm formally educated to a certain point. Um, anyway, that being said, I, I don't, I'm definitely not rich, and I definitely don't have the extra money to just fly around the world um, to, to hang out. So this is actually my job. I do travel a lot um, thanks to grants and um, fellowships and money that I receive from the university um, under my stipend. 
And I use those funds to go to Brazil where I've been often pretty much, well not pretty much, literally every summer I've gone to Brazil to do research since I started doing my master's in 2011, 2012. Um, and I also had been to Brazil and used to live in Brazil many years before that. So I've had a connection with Brazil in some way or another for a big chunk of my life. I would say at least half of my life at this point, pretty much. Um, but I have also... Um, been there mainly in recent years for doing research, obviously. So I go to, I'm usually in Sao Paulo, which is in the southern part of Brazil, but I have done a lot of research as well in Rio de Janeiro and Rio. Um, and I've done, I've been to the north of Brazil, to Bahia, um, and several other cities throughout the country um, for my research and for other research that I did in the past and other work that I've done in the past. So Long story short, <laughs> that's why I'm always traveling all the time. So for those of you who follow me or you've seen sometimes on Twitter where I'm like, oh, I've, I've got a crazy time zone I'm dealing with or I'm out of the country until X time and I can't do this or whatever, that's why. I'm always traveling for work for the most part, with the exception of family, personal stuff um, that involves my husband's family who lives in Turkey. So sometimes you'll see that I'm posting about traveling to Turkey, but again, Usually I'm doing this um, on a shoestring budget and <laughs> not necessarily for fun, as normal people would say, or for like vacation, but for actual work, um, I'm here to do, I'm usually abroad to do research. So I spend most of my time in the library or in the archives, but the fun part is that what I look through in the archives is pretty interesting. It's like spicy stuff. I have, um, I deal with a lot of secret police files, and so... A lot of the stuff that I'm reading through on a regular basis is about, not, not so much about torture and the like, um, but learning more about why people were considered a threat by the state. Um, and through those types of records, I can get a better idea of what people were thinking, what people were reading, what people were writing about, and why their political activity was seen as quote-unquote dangerous or subversive um, by these oppressive states in Portugal or in Brazil. Uh, and in which case, they were actually in communication because a lot of the Portuguese secret police, known as the PIDE, were also communicating with the secret police in Brazil under the dictatorship, and they were known as the DOPIS. So you see a lot of um, interaction between the two of them. Um, there's the two groups. Because a lot of people from Brazil who were going to these other places uh, were doing so by way of Portugal. So they were going to Africa by way of Portugal because usually a lot of the flights were coming going from Portugal to Mozambique or to Angola. Um, and sometimes people would say, for example, oh, I have family in Portugal, and they would get permission to leave the country, but then they would go to <laughs> Africa instead of coming back to Brazil. Um, there's also an interesting turn of events um, in the 70s where you start to see a lot of people who were interested in Africa in the first place actually going to live in some of these Portuguese African countries. So not just communicating via letters or um, other forms of correspondence through newspapers and the like, but also by way of physically going from Brazil to these countries um, to live and to see what the the free independent governments that had overthrown the Portuguese, how they operated, um, and in particular because they were obviously socialist. So the Angolan government, the Mozambican government, um, the Guinea-Bissau and the Cape Verdean governments were all uh, very hard left, as you would say, Marxist, um, communist, uh, gov socialist governments. And that's important to keep in mind as well, because oftentimes um, I think there is 
a depiction that I will get into later of people of African descent being moderate or not interested in left politics or left politics being purely a white thing or something for bros. And um, in my research, that's <laughs> not the case. I, I have lots of women of color, men of color, um, white women, etc., who are traveling and or communicating with these groups and they consider themselves uh, Marxists, Marxist-Leninists, communists, socialists, leftists. They're using all of these categories that we were told during election 2016 and even many years prior to that, um, that this was just, these are just white projects or these are, you know, things that black people don't do or people of color don't do or women don't do. And so that sort of connects me back to the Left Pocket Project. So um, I have an MA in Latin American Studies. Uh, yo hablo Espanol. I speak Spanish. I speak Portuguese. Um, so that's why sometimes you'll see me posting things that are in Spanish or Portuguese um, because I do want to make sure that if people follow my sites who don't speak English or who speak other languages in addition to English, um, they can at least follow along and know what the focus of the page or my personal interests are. Um, I also would say that, what else is important about me? Um, this is why I think this kind of podcast is hard because I don't like spending a lot of time talking about myself. As you can see, I focus more on my research than my actual, like, who I am as a person. Um, but yeah, I think that's pretty adequate. Uh, I'm heavily into music. That's sort of a, a hidden, not so hidden for people who know me in person, but hidden, I guess, for people who see me typing things on Twitter and in social media. I do have a very deep interest in music. I used to DJ. Um, I don't produce or anything like that, but I have had some dalliances in uh, playing music live uh, for audiences by way of a mixer and the like. Um, and yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, I grew up in the South. I'm originally from Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and I lived there until I was 18 and then went to New York to go to college and just stuck around. I lived in New York for 12, 13 years. Um, and then I now commute back and forth between Baltimore and New York for school related things, um, meetings and the like. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much it, I think for me. Now, I guess if you have any other questions, you can always send them to me, uh, via Twitter or you can go on Curious Cat if you feel like there's something that you want to keep anonymous or that you're afraid to ask me revealing your face. Obviously, try to be appropriate. Like, I won't answer questions that I feel are personal to the degree that it's inappropriate. Um, but you have, if you have any other questions that you want me to address about me, myself, um, I would totally do that. And you can just send them to me, either on the Left Pocket Project uh, Curious Cat page, um, which is just Curious Cat, I think, slash or dot me slash left POC or something. Just type left POC, you'll find it. Um, or the one for my personal Twitter, which is just Muse Wendy. I think you just have to type Wendy Muse. I don't know. Someone will find it. You'll find it. It's very easy to find. Now, on to the Left Pocket Project. So, some people have asked, why did I start it? What's this all about? Who helps you with the project? Etc. So, I just want to make one thing very, very clear. 
this project is me, myself, and I. I literally do everything myself. So <laughs> I do the podcast myself. I set up the interviews myself. I run the Twitter page myself. I run the Facebook page myself. I run, like, are you guys getting the idea? So I do everything myself. I do all the editing um, and, and everything. I literally do everything for this project myself. I don't have any um, technical help or whatever. So that's why you'll, you'll notice that it's kind of DIY, like rugged in some ways, um, scrappy, but that's okay. I think the message is more important than the image sometimes. And, um, so I'm okay with that. And I think that, you know, like in, in the process of doing this, it's been really fun and engaging and I've learned a lot and I really appreciate those of you who've come along for the ride, despite it's the, the project's somewhat scrappiness. So thank you for that. Um, also, while I'm talking about thanks, I wanted to say thank you so, 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 so very much to all of the people who donate on Patreon, to all of the people who shared um, information about the project, for those of you who've tweeted, who've commented, who've asked questions, who've sent in suggestions, etc. I really, really appreciate it. And I say that because, again, as this is very much a labor of love and something that I'm doing on my own, I think that these types of educational projects, sometimes it feels like thankless work and it feels like you're just either preaching to the choir or shouting into the void. And so for those of you who've been able to show your support, monetary or otherwise, I really appreciate it because it motivates me to keep going and working on the project. And it also helps me have an understanding of how I can sustain the project going forward into the future, uh, which I'll talk about a bit later. But I think that you know, I really, I think it's very, very important to have this kind of community support. So thank you so much for that at this point. So about the project, um, as you may have already guessed, because I've hinted at it a bit, but one of the things that I noticed um, during election 2016, which is when, at least I'll start with the primaries. So when Bernie and Hillary were running against one another in the primaries, and Martin O'Malley, I guess, but no one remembers who he is at this point, uh, and Jim Webb, who I've, is also very forgettable. But anyway, um, Hillary and Bernie were running against one another during the Democratic primary. And one of the things that I kept seeing over and over on social media, and sometimes even hearing beyond it, is that leftism or socialism or any sort of like left-leaning politics that go left of the Democratic Party are a thing for bros. And by bros, of course, that meant in shorthand, you know, like this was, this was shorthand for young white guys who had gone to college, who were like aggressive towards women or who thought they were right all the time, um, who were kind of like frat, bro, frat boys, frat boys, but like with left, temporary left-leaning politics um, because it was a fad. And it really bothered me. This image bothered me not only because I'm a woman and not on top of that, I'm a black woman. So I'm neither white nor male. I'm certainly not a bro. Um, and I supported Bernie Sanders. At least I supported the grand majority of his um, platform. I didn't agree with all of it. Um, I had some issues that I raised during the primary and well after um, that some people chose to listen to and some people chose to reject. But that's their, that's their right, you know, whatever. Um, but I think that, yeah, for the most part, I was in favor, at least in comparison to Hillary Clinton, I felt like of the two of them, he was the better candidate who addressed the interests that I found or the issues that I found important, um, such as, you know, helping people with regard to income inequality, um, being better about foreign policy in the U.S., although his foreign policy had some, a lot of issues and in my opinion, still has a lot of issues and things that he needs to work on. But again, I think for me, 
between Hillary and uh, Bernie, he was the lesser two evils and closer to my own personal politics, which were growing more and more left, the more and more I learned about um, these past struggles that I research and that I have to read about for my own academic um, academic pursuits, right? And so I think that like watching this happen and watching people like me and many of my peers and people that I became friends with online, to be honest, under you know during this process, all of us kept getting ignored or um, erased in the process of like saying, hey, wait a second, like I'm not a bro. Um, I'm a person of color. I'm a woman. And I think that, you know, he's better on policy issues that would help that would benefit communities like the one that I come from, right? Um, and, you know, I, I grew up in a single-parent household. My father died when I was a child. My mother is in social work, and I was never rich. And I, I grew up seeing rich people all the time because of where I went to school and recognizing that their lives were different from mine um, and that, you know, one health care scare or one minor crisis could send me and my mother into homelessness, you know, if God forbid something had happened. And so I really think that having grown up in that way and understanding um, that a lot more people have it a lot worse off than even I did, that there has to be something done and we have to interrupt this process of constantly, um, you know, just ignoring a big chunk of the population that's being hurt more and more by the day by way of austerity in this country and just greed um, on the part of corporations and the like. So all of that aside, <laughs> I really, I was frustrated that, you know, I could have these politics, but then whatever I would say would either be ignored or reduced to um, that I was somehow like doing the work of white bros or that I had been brainwashed or that I was a self-hating feminist or something. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And I think that a lot of the propaganda and rhetoric that surrounded the Clinton campaign was dangerous to um women, women of color, et cetera, who were, especially, I should say, who did agree with a lot of Bernie and other people, to, even to the left of Bernie. If they agreed with their politics, they were dismissed, ignored, et cetera. I think it was dangerous because it sort of spat in the face of a lot of real history that we have as a community, as people of color in this country and elsewhere, um, and as women, too. I think that there's so much... Um, involvement and even leadership of women of color, of people of color, of 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 people in general who were not part of this quote-unquote Bernie bro idea, right? Um, people who didn't fit into that category. And it almost struck me as like an attempt to really not just temporarily erase these people and dismiss these people and dismiss people like me, but also to rewrite history and to have a sort of revisionist history that whitewashed or erased or took away any sort of po radical politics of people of color that if you look at our history, like this is how we survived, right? Um, we, we cannot look at slave rebellions. We cannot look at anti-colonial movements. We cannot look at so many movements for women's rights and civil rights and all of these things and say to ourselves, oh yeah, that was a centrist project because it wasn't. A lot of these people, um, as I've discussed and have had guests discuss in previous podcasts, a lot of these people were leftists and self-proclaimed, you know, like they called themselves communist, socialist, Marxist, etc. They had these left-leaning ideologies. But also, if you predate the, you know, you can, there's a lot of stuff in the history of people of color um, 
in this country and around the world that predates any mention of Marx, predates Marx as a whole, right? Very much predates Bernie, predates Marx, predates Lenin, all of these people, because there are aspects of communism that you see in other forms around the world, in communalism and other ways of being. And that's not to fetishize or sort of essentialize indigenous groups around the world, but there are aspects of what we call communism now that we saw in much earlier forms that influenced people like Marx to write his work. So I think it's really important that we not get caught up in this, or I thought it was important that we not get caught up in just letting ourselves be erased and letting our history, quite frankly, be spat on um, and distorted. And as someone who's in history and hopes to go on to be a professor of history, I thought it was really important to disrupt this process right away. So in um, in around in 2016, I, I often would get into these sort of discussions about that history with people online, um, including people who were considered at that point my political adversaries, so Republicans and centrist Democrats. Um, I would say to them, you know, like that you're erasing this history by calling me a Bernie bro. You're erasing the history of like millions and millions of people and present of millions and millions of people around the world who, quite frankly, are of color and who would not be considered white bros, but who take up, who've taken up socialist politics in order to survive and fight back the powers that be that seek to oppress them. Um, and I noticed that a lot of that was still getting ignored, but I said, I'm going to keep doing this and I'm going to keep engaging in these discussions to the degree that I can. And I actually wanted to be able to point to something and say, here's a book you can read. Here's a set of articles you can read. Here's something that you can tangibly like touch and pick up and think about and see that I'm not just making this up, right? I'm not just little Wendy Muse, some random, random person on the internet who's telling you that I know this information, but that they're actually like well-established scholars who've written it, uh, written about this, and people that you actually respect who've written about this or who embody these politics that you need to go learn about. And so that's when I decided to create the hashtag LeftPOC, and through that hashtag I started tweeting just books, literally books, <laughs> that I had read or that colleagues and friends of mine had discussed with me and mentioned in passing, um, whatever, that I had some sort of familiarity with, but most of which I had actually read for my own work. And it, they all involved leftists, a leftist of color in the United States and elsewhere in the rest of the world um, in, a lot of, in a variety of movements. And I just started tweeting the books, Left POC, a book about slavery and slave revolts, a book about the Haitian Revolution, a book about socialist involvement in the civil rights movement, a book about, you know, like anti-colonial wars in Guinea. A book, there were just so many books and there, there, there's always going to be, <laughs> there are always going to be a ton of books. There's no way to fully um, capture all of these books just under one hashtag. So I said, there must be a way for me to kind of bring this book list to life and make it something that is not just a hashtag, but something that's more sustainable and that's a project, to be honest. And so in April or May of 2016, I'm sorry, of 2017, I decided to like make this thing official. I opened a Twitter account. I started um, posting information that I thought was relevant to the project. Um, and I you know, was still posting books and tweets that I felt were relevant that showed the needs of groups of color who were poor in the United States, but also that showed the responses to austerity and other conditions worldwide um, by groups of color who define themselves as leftists. 
and um, that's when I really decided like I have to make this a real thing. So for some people, um, I've gotten the question, or at least I've, I've gotten the impression that some people think it's just a podcast. But uh, it's not just a podcast. So that's why it's called The Project, The Left Pocket Project. So Left Pocket, to be clear, it comes from the, the hashtag Left POC. So if you see it written out, it's just L-E-F-T space and then P-O-C in big in caps and then the rest of the word pocket and then project. So just it's more, um, it makes more sense when you look at it than when I just say it. But shorthand, it's the Left POC Project. And... Um, through the project, I have multiple things going on at once. So the first of those is obviously the podcast, um, where I interview scholars, historians, writers, activists about movements that were led and comprised by people of color who consider themselves leftists, or in some cases even would be considered proto-socialists um, in some way, or having roots that relate to what socialism built upon going forward. Um, and... I interview those sorts of people to talk about not only the importance of these histories, but also how those histories can teach us something um, for the present and better strengthen leftist movements um, to be, to just be better going forward and to actually win at some point and hopefully, um, you know, resolve some of the problems that many of us face and hopefully resolve them on a much more global scale uh, for the long term. But I think also uh, part of the, the project is to, Again, to clarify, not just focusing on the U.S., because I think there's a lot of good stuff out there about um, leftism in the United States, but I think there's there has to be more problematizing of the space of the United States, what the United States means in a larger global context, and how the United States has been, unfortunately, the bully, and how we, what is our place as people of color, for example, who are leftists and want to see the United States be a more equal player, if not uh, completely diminished as a as a world player because of the way it's abused its power towards people elsewhere who are suffering under its rule and under its, its abuses. So I really think it's important for us to always have a more internationalist perspective and understand that, you know, our, our leftist politics can't stop at the border, as I've heard some people say, you know, about certain types of feminism and the like. It cannot stop at the border. We have to continue and see ourselves in, um, in part of a much larger project and not just something that's related to the United States and we're then telling leftists from other parts of the world how to run their stuff. Like, no, no, no. I think we can learn a lot from them. Um, but it's also not their job to teach us themselves, right? It's, it's up to us to really do that work and start... Um, learning on our own. And so that's why, again, I think the project is really important and the people that I have on as guests are really important to that process. Um, the other thing about it is that, so not just the podcast, but I also every week on the Twitter page I have, and the Twitter timeline, I should say, I change um, the avatar to be a featured, like, left POC of the week. So um, right now I have up Lelia Gonzalez, who is a feminist, black feminist, writer, thinker, sociologist, activist, um, and leftist from Brazil. Um, but every week I change the person in the avatar. So I've had people like Fannie Lou Hamer, um, Eduardo Mondelani, so many other people um, who are really pivotal in uh, leftist movements around the world and in the United States. And so I feature these people once a week, and it's part of a much larger thread where you can click and you can learn more about the people whose faces you see but whose histories or names you may ne never have even heard of 
or the ideas that they decided to push um, towards their own freedom or others. Um, so that's another part of the Left Pocket Project. Another aspect of the project um, is initially I wanted to have the pod, instead of having a podcast, I wanted to have live events. But because I received a grant, like a really big grant actually, to go back to Brazil to do research and then also to go, go back to Portugal and then to go to Mozambique for several months, I didn't want to get the project, the live part of the project started and then leave the country for six or seven months and then come back and have to start everything all over again and at that point have momentum die. And so it's something that I hope to incorpor incorporate later on of having a, um, an aspect of the project that is actually live and in person and involves even events not at university campuses because I think that's really important too. Um, part of this, a big part of this project actually is connecting people who are in academia with the local community and with the broader public because I think there are some academics who try this but then they still have they still have all of their events on campus at like really random parts of the day or times of the day where they know that people can't attend and so I wanted to to move move this information out of books and move this information off campus and actually go to the communities where some of these movements actually found their start um, and speak with local activists and historians who work on these histories um, and engage with activists and the like from around the world. So one day I hope to actually make that, uh, to realize that aspect of the project because it was one of the most important things that I, I had in mind when I started the project but unfortunately couldn't. Uh, begin right away because of my own research schedule. Um, but I think beyond those two things, the other aspect of it is that obviously I'm on all <laughs> forms of social media now except for Instagram maybe. So I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Media Revolt, which is Michael Salomon's great website. It's like Facebook for leftists. I really like it. Um, and I'm on Reddit. Um, I'm also on Patreon. For those of you who've shown your support already, you know about that. Um, but all of these, through all of these mediums, you can just find me by searching left POC. So that makes it a lot easy or a lot easier for people to find the project. And in addition to social media, um, I've also started a website, which I'm releasing tonight along with the podcast. Many aspects of it are still under construction, but I just wanted to at least put it out there so people have the URL. So for those of you who maybe haven't guessed yet, it's literally Left POC. So it's just www.leftpoc.com. Very easy to remember, easy to find. Um, and I hope to sort of consolidate all the aspects of the project there. So the podcast, the list, et cetera, um, the Left POC of the week. Um, and perhaps do a little bit of writing there as well about where I see the purpose of the project, sort of the background of the project and the things that I'm doing through the project to further educate people on um, the histories of leftists of color. Another aspect of the Left Pocket Project is I the Left POC book list that I created through the hashtag, I've actually decided to go ahead and put that in one space, um, just call it the Left POC syllabus. So I'll have that on the website as well, so that way you can actually click and buy or download some of the books that um, I featured in the list. And I'm always adding to the list as well, so it's not like a dead list. It's actually an ever-growing, ever-expanding um, list where you can find a lot of information, helpful information, if and when you have the time to read a little bit or discuss something that's written about these histories with someone. It's a great source. It's also really good for anyone who is perhaps interested in doing this on an academic level in some way 
um, or even for activists who look to these kinds of histories for inspiration and information, um, it's a good source to have to always be able to go back to and click and find something that perhaps piqued your interest, but that you missed when I was doing it as um, a thread on Twitter, right? I don't expect everyone to use Twitter and I don't expect everyone to have followed the, the, um, the hashtag. So I did want to consolidate all of that and now it'll be available as the left POC, left POC syllabus. Um, something else that I've done through left, the Left Pocket Project that I think is really important is highlighting important academic um, or social events that relate to leftism of color or that are the um, opportunities that are geared toward people of color who are interested in studying this history. So I often post um, conferences, academic or otherwise. I'll post information about scholarships, about research fellowships, um, and other means through which you can fund and, and better grow, I guess, um, these projects that you all are working on. Um, and any sort of work that you're interested in forwarding that relates to this history. Um, and any other opportunities. I mean, I've, I've posted some things that relate to uh, scholarships for people who are interested in writing, um, people who are interested in becoming journalists, or um, people who are interested in, you know, using digital humanities to better, to further forward some of these um, left-leaning histories and projects. So I really try to make the Left Pocket Project a fully integrated platform through which you can find multiple resources to help you better understand the histories, but also to add to it yourself um, by using these resources to be more informed yourself, um, to add information, to add your own research, to expand your own research, etc. So I really, um, I didn't want to just stop with, here's a book list, here's a podcast, but I wanted it to also be a space where you could have access to opportunities um, yourself. And yeah, that's pretty much <laughs> the Left Pocket Project. I'm constantly expanding it. There's another aspect of the project that I'll be launching at the end of February that I'm really excited about um, and that I think that you all will be excited about too. Uh, it's, it's pretty exciting and I can't give away any hints right now, but I'm really, really excited about it and I'll tell you more as the time approaches. Um, and I also am always doing things, um, in terms of conferences and talks and things like that. I really do try to make sure that like anyone who has the time or has just a moment to, um, hear more about the research that I'm doing and that other people are doing, that there's a way to kind of like be in touch with that and make it a real tangible <laughs> thing and not just something that's like locked up in the ivory tower. I really, I have so many issues with that. Um, so I do try to really uh, make my, my research more accessible, easily accessible um, online and elsewhere. Uh, so I'll be giving a few talks in the coming weeks, and I'll be sure to post information about that as well. Um, and I think that's pretty much it for the project for now. I do hope one day to continue expanding it. Again, I'm doing this all on my own, so I do what I can within my own capacity. Um, and I think if I had more free time and like, I guess more money, I don't know. This isn't a beg, I'm not begging for money by the way. I'm just saying I think if I had more resources and more free time that um, I would be able to do more with it. But for now, I'm really comfortable with where I am for the project and I hope that 
you all have found it in some way important and significant um, for what it's worth, right? I, I hope. That's my hope. Um, but it's really, it's just like a total, totally humble labor of love. And it's a way for me to take what I know and what my friends know and what scholars whose work I really admire and whom, whom I look up to, right? Um, ways to, to make the connection between what we do and what other people want to know more about and haven't been exposed to in their entire lives. I know, personally speaking, I did not, you know, my, my mother was um, a Democrat and my family members are Democrats and they are very, you know, they're like left-leaning, but they also understand or they, they see themselves within a more standard um, set of politics, even though they too are often disappointed with Democrats, but they vote for them, right? Um, and I think that having grown up in the South, the alternative is like a really, really scary set of Republicans. I mean, the Democrats are already racist and bad enough on their own, but I think the alternative being the Republicans the way they are, and especially Southern Republicans, it's like a completely different breed. So I can understand why they made the decisions that they made in terms of their politics. But I think that there's something more in the, you know, like we can see in the horizon. And I'm really happy to note that there's a lot of amazing left-leaning organizing that's going on in the South that's pushing against what's the standard um, issue Democrat, right? There's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on a bit underground, but that I think is worth really paying attention to. And so being someone from there, um, I think for me it's, it's really been important to learn more about radical movements that have happened right under my nose, um, that happened only a few years before I was born, that were happening, you know, across the ocean in places that I didn't even know about, right, before I came to college and before I went to grad school and things like that. And so I don't want anyone to have a moment in their life where they want to learn more, but they don't have access to it. They can't afford to go to college. They can't afford to go to grad school, or they don't have time to take these tests or read all these books or whatever. I want that information to be available for everyone who's interested in it and who wants to learn more. And I don't think that people should be deprived of that right to learn and right to engage um, just because, just by virtue of their class or race or whatever aspect of their background that is, you know, that, that by the, the powers that be or whatever puts them in a marginalized position. I don't think that that's fair or right. And I definitely don't want to be a part of a system that replicates these sorts of inequalities. So I, if there's any way that I can kind of break out or break down that, that aspect through the means that I have, this is one of the ways that I can do it. Um, and I always joke and say, you know, like, <laughs> I said this on another podcast, and I've said it just in passing with people, but I say, you know, when the revolution comes, I'll be the person at the newspaper writing about it, right? Because I'm not, I'm not a combative person. I'm not, I don't see myself as, um, like, uh, I, I don't know how good I'd be with a gun. <laughs> I don't, I joke that I would shoot myself in the face by accident. You know, like I'm not, I'm not so much a person who um, would be on the battlefield, but I admire the people who do uh, want to do that and who would be willing to do that um, to fight. But I think that everybody has their place um, in these sorts of struggles. And I think in this ongoing struggle, the skills that I have that I've gained through academic research and through just learning um, on my own and within the school setting this is how I can contribute. And I hope that um, it's a contribution that people value and that they find some, some solace in, in knowing that like, there are some of us out here who actually do give a shit and who are trying to really um, 
you know, like expand beyond the confines of these very insular kind of selective spaces that I don't think have very much, they don't, they don't, they don't try to keep in touch or get in touch with, with the, the, even the people that they're researching sometimes. So I don't want to be like that. That's not my, my thing. Um, but <laughs> going forward now, just thinking, um, for those of you who are interested in finding out more, obviously you can follow me on Twitter, um, at left POC. You can go on Patreon to show your support and also to kind of keep up with what's going on with the project. Cause sometimes I post updates there, um, about the podcast and other aspects of the project. So you can go to patreon.com slash left POC. Another quick thing about Patreon, I don't like having any, um, any information or um, audio or any of that behind a paywall. I just don't believe in it. And so anything that I offer to Patreons, it's primarily like, it's usually a sneak peek or something into the next week's podcast. Um, so it's nothing fancy, but... So for those of you who show your support, it's primarily because you just support the project. Um, but I'm thinking of new ways to reward Patreons or to reward patrons, but without depriving others, uh, people who cannot afford to give or who who don't give yet, uh, but who would be interested in it. But I, I don't want to keep any information or footage or or not footage, excuse me, but audio and um, talks and the like behind a paywall. It's just against my politics, and I don't want to do it. Um, what else? You can find me on Facebook and that's facebook.com slash left POC. Uh, you can get the podcast on SoundCloud, on Spreaker, and now on iTunes. If you just search left POC on iTunes, um, and then on Spreaker, it's spreaker.com slash user slash left POC. And on SoundCloud, it's soundcloud.com slash left POC. I'm also, as I mentioned earlier, on Curious Cat, um, as, as left POC, <laughs> duh, um, and I'm available, I've started a Reddit page, but I haven't really done anything with it, but I am on Reddit as left POC. Um, and I also am, um, beyond, beyond the social media stuff, as I said, I've started a website that's just leftpoc.com and I'll have more information about that and more, uh, more actual stuff on the site soon, but I'll go ahead and put that out for those of you who are interested in seeing it as it develops and is under construction, but continues to get a little more detailed and interesting by the day. So that is pretty much it. I really appreciate those of you who've <laughs> dealt with me just talking by myself for an hour, which is really hard to even think that I was able to do that. But there you have it. It's been pretty much an hour of me talking about this project. But as I said, I, I really am passionate about it. And I hope that you all find some value in it. And I hope that if you get anything out of this project, it's that you're able to learn from the past and think about these histories of people who've come before us and really fought for our rights um, and their rights and to secure access and, and you know, a, an ever-increasing closeness to equality. That something about that history touches you and that something about that history motivates you to push for equality in the present um, and that you can look at these, look at this history and think about what they did that we can incorporate in the present and ways that we can make things better for those who come after us. So thank you so much for listening. I hope to see and talk to some of you all on social media soon. Continue to please show your support. 
um, by liking, sharing, reviewing, donating, whatever you can in whatever capacity that you can. Um, and now, just as a quick update, next week I will be, uh, I will not have a podcast for next week because I'll be in the process of traveling back from Portugal and have a lot of stuff going on. Um, and so there will not be a podcast next week, but there will be a podcast the week after that and hopefully, um, you know, next, the subsequent weeks after that, there will be a consistent podcast. Um, so again, Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you all have a great rest of the day. Have a good one. Bye.